Good day, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Numbers Don't Lie, where we put the numbers behind the electioneering back into the rightful place, front and center. I'm your host, Scott Peter Smith, and we are joined again by our resident data analyst and director of Edgist, uh, Paul Berkowitz. And for the first time on this series, Renjeni Munsami, um, associate editor of analysis at the Tito Black Star Group. Welcome, guys. Thanks Thank for having you. me. Today we're taking a closer look at gender and the possible gender divide in South African politics and the voting trends of women and their decision making in this regard. Um, so while South African Party often congratulates itself uh, in representation of women um, in Parliament and our constitutionally enshrined right to equality, South Africa's gender, gender divide is still clearly profound. Um, in other words, the representation in Parliament doesn't always uh, translate into improved conditions for women. Um, but before I put my foot in it, and we could get into some stats, maybe, uh, Paul, if you could just take us through some numbers uh, behind uh, women voters and their trends in South Africa. Thanks, Scott. So the first thing to say, which is what we say all the time, is that because there's an absence of exit polls and um, rich survey information that breaks down the electorate into component groups, you know, not just who votes for which party, but how party votes are stratified by race and gender and income. We don't have a lot of that, so we, we can only guess. But what we do have from past elections, and we've spoken about this before, is that women as a group overall are much more likely to be registered to vote, and then they're much more likely on the day to turn out to vote. The big numbers we looked at in 2014 in the last national provincial election is that although women make up about 51-52% of the over 18s, the people who could vote, that number increases to 55% of all registered voters and then again rises to 57% of all the people that actually voted in the 2014 national provincial elections, meaning that about 6 in 10 voters were women. But there's, there seems to be a disconnect between women's issues and, and voting. Women turn out to vote even though, as you said, uh, a lot of issues which are important to women aren't being addressed. Unemployment figures for women, particularly black African women and rural women, are the worst in the country. There are long-standing issues of gender-based violence, intimate partner violence, um, and, you know, committing resources within the criminal justice system, within the health system to address that. There are health-related issues. We still, although there's been a lot of improvement, we've got one of, of the worst infant mortality rates and um, mothers dying in childbirth rates compared to developed countries. We're doing well compared to developing countries, but with our resources, we could do a lot more. But uh, um, Regeni, how does this women's vote actually make any changes in the in in who's actually in power? How, what's what's the influence there? I mean, if they're not changing their vote based based on all these on these other issues, what are they doing, or what can they do? So, firstly, Scott, I don't think there is such a thing as a woman's vote because nobody talks to women as a constituency. Mm. Um, so, in other parts of the world, we've seen this uh, where there is a specific target at at women as a constituency, and you've seen it, for example, in Hillary Clinton's campaign in the uh, U.S. elections in uh, presidential elections in 2016. So issues like health care uh, and family planning, um, child care uh, were major issues on which she campaigned. But even there in the U.S., although th there was such, uh, you know, for example, in the Democratic Party, these were major issues. Um, she 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 didn't 
uh, she didn't kind of win over the constituency uh, altogether because um, I think the, the the final results show that a large proportion of white women, for example, voted for Donald Trump, mm. irrespective of their rights. So I think that's a good, uh, although you know it's by no no, no means representative of uh, trends among women voters around the world. It's it's an interesting test case that there was messaging directed at women, mm. but there was almost like a rebellion from white women voters uh, against the establishment um, and a preference for something out of the ordinary and something way out of the ordinary. And we must bear in mind that uh, just before the the, the vote, the, the, uh, Trump was exposed for um, uh, you know the the, the famous um, Access Hollywood tape, uh, mm. you know, disparaging uh, remarks about women. And you would have you would think that that would offend women and would not vote in, in the way that they eventually voted. But I think that 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 provides for us a lesson in terms of not taking the woman's vote for granted. So that woman won't vote because you are speaking at specific issues. We vote based on a whole compendium of issues and how politics affects our lives. Mm. Um, but we must remember that a large proportion of our population in South Africa is largely conservative. So to shift voting patterns is a major thing. And to shift voting patterns amongst older women in South Africa, I think, is, is would do a, 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 a lot of taking, um, and and the, and the, I think that's the massive problem with this particular election campaign that that we're in now is that you haven't seen specific messaging, a special specific campaigning targeting um, women with the aim of shifting voting patterns. So here's an interesting thing: there was a, there was a report last year, the Center for um, Social Development in Africa, the CSDA, but October last year, it's a new organization for me. I wasn't aware of it, but they released. Some some, some polling, some polling stats last year. That's right. So women are, you know, the, of course, in, in generally, like most, especially in African countries, they do carry the bulk of socioeconomic and inequality burdens. So here's a question for you, okay? And I don't. I actually, for some reason, it, always, it just freaks me out, this issue. I don't know why it's not a clear win for any political party that's trying to speak to speak to a woman issue, and that's sanitary pads. Why are not sanitary pads just thrown everywhere around the country to solve a huge a huge problem. I mean, surely that's that's a bit of a that's a that's a win for an, for a party. If you're going to get any messaging right, or if you want to attract a, a woman voter, surely that's one of the that's a key issue or an obvious issue. You might think so. I, I think Scott, that Ranjan, you touched on something very important. Sorry, that was a that was a that was a curveball I threw at you, but it, it, it was actually for Ranjan. Kind of popped into popped into my head. Oh, okay. Well, I, uh, to answer that a little bit, I'd like to unpack a little what. Ranjan you spoke about because I think she's put a finger on it mm. because uh, we're complex uh, we have constructed identities as Ranjan said Hillary targeted so-called women's issues but one of the biggest issues which on one level you would think is a women's issue front and center but it becomes because it's about bodily autonomy I'm talking about um, 
reproductive rights and abortion and Roe versus Wade, which has, it seems that it's, it's seeped into all the issues, depending on how it's reported, at least in the United States. Um, you know, talk about Donald Trump uh, um, appointing more conservative judges to the U.S. Supreme Court who might overturn Roe versus Wade or even more conservative judges on the, the district circuit. And I'm just thinking here in studio, you've got an observant Jew and you've got a practicing Catholic. And it might have been that Hillary could have talked until she's blue in the face about issues which are important to women. But that a lot of women, not just women, but a lot of women that voted Republican. And, and we've seen this in other places, even, let's say, women who are African-American, who are poor, who, who are affected by all of these socioeconomic issues and these gendered issues and, and, and gendered issues around rights, maybe first and foremost are good religious women for whom um, it, it could be reduced to a single issue. Does this candidate support abortion or is this candidate pro-life? Which just goes to show that, you know, sometimes different parts of our identity Trump other parts of our identity and maybe you know talking about the women's vote as a big monolithic vote is as stupid as talking about the black vote in a country where 80% of the people are black African it's just that as I say again we have so such poor and such thin polling data we don't manage to break down the entire you know, voting population into small enough groups to handle but to answer the question on on the sanitary pads I don't I don't think it's been made a political issue and so people don't perceive this uh, uh, as being something to use their vote to secure um, so but there are other things that are for example with social grants, grants yeah. that, that, that is a massive tool that is used in campaigning um, but I think that what this campaign has done is, is, is opened up a number of issues so for example with land with housing uh, with job opportunities um, but the language and the message around all these issues is targeted broadly. Mm -hmm. So when you talk land, you're addressing the unemployed and the landless, which are men and women. So although women bear the brunt of these issues um, and of the economic situation, there is not uh, tailored messaging to women, to, for example, rural women who, who are struggling to eke out a living. Um, with social grants, for example, they, when um, there was, uh, you know, the danger of an interruption uh, of uh, of the grant, of the SASA grant system uh, uh, a few years ago, when the Constitutional Court had to had to intervene, had that crisis escalated and had there been in, an interruption, we would have had a massive human catastrophe on our hands that would have affected mostly women. I would say, um, as uh, you know, uh, sort of people who, who who look after extended families, who have to look after um, you know grandchildren, who, who bear the brunt of the migrant worker system. Um, 
but yet even then there was no messaging targeted at uh, at uh, you know elderly women and th- and that would have been the opportunity to do it to say this particular political party put your livelihood in danger mm. we are the ones who can secure it but you know that you don't see that kind of um uh, you know politicking uh, happening that that would uh, impact so what we, we, we it boils down to Scott is the psyche of the women voter what appeals to women and what doesn't now I think a massive flaw in the election campaign also and amongst all of us when we debate this issue is the assumption that women voters are elderly women in rural areas because we have a large cohort um, well by, by far the lower, highest cohort of registered voters are younger women and um, these are aspirant young women who are, you know um, are seeking um, uh, higher education uh, opportunities who are seeking employment who are seeking upward mobility and there specifically is the lack of targeted messaging because there's nothing that any single political party is saying that targets this um, you know up and co- coming cohort in society no exactly I mean that's I mean even when you're talking about um, uh, the grants and the pads I kind of put that into the same basket but it, again it comes down to the messaging so speaking in terms of how uh, political parties are speaking to women um, there was a uh, analysis done by the, I think it was the Mail and Guardian uh, recently, in terms of how many how many times the word "woman" uh, was was mentioned in the in the manifestos of the top groups. Um, the manifesto showed that the word "woman" was mentioned 130, 131 times in comparison with development, public, and land, um, which each mentioned more than 160 times by all the uh, political parties combined. We're talking about the ANC, the DA, and the EFF. Um, the IFP and the newly formed Good Party um, had. Actually, the highest. They had about 1.1% um, uh, in terms of the mentions of women in their manifestos. Um, you know, when we're in a situation where the DA draws almost two thirds of its votes from uh, from women, as do the smarter, smaller parties at a 65%. The EFF is the lowest in that regard. Um, and in terms of uh, implementing gender quotes in, within their within their parties, I mean, the DA is, DA is actually the lowest. But I mean, it, it leads to your question in terms of. Where's the messaging there? Then, I mean, if women have, you know, there's what, almost 2 million more registered women voters than men of somewhat? Um, something like that. Something like 14 to 12 yeah. million or something. So, I mean, it kind of raises the question, what's, where's the messaging? And, you know. I've got a, a theory, and it's not just my theory because it's obviously developed by people who are smarter and do behavioral psychology better. But here's a universal truth about people, and it's not just women, is that... People are more motivated and people are more able to understand and process mentally a negative thing than a positive thing. People are more risk averse. People are more worried about losing what they have than gaining what they don't have. And I think maybe that's the major difference between talking about sanitary pads or talking about social grants. Because the very same research we've been discussing from the Center for Social Development in Africa, one of the first questions that asked the respondents 
was do you care more about political rights and democracy or do you care more about socioeconomic rights? The majority or a plurality of people chose socioeconomic rights above democratic rights, meaning implying they'd be more likely to vote for a party that would guarantee a job or at least maintaining the grant than they were worried about civil liberties. The other thing is when the... The respondents in the survey were, were stratified according to whether they were grant recipients or not. That was another question. There was a small, it was weak, but it was statistically significant. It was there that suggested that grant recipients were more likely to vote for the ANC. Not because of what the ANC had done for them in the past, not, you know, and that's the, the positive angle, but because of the fear that voting for another party might lead to a loss of that grant. And that is the whole rational risk aversion thing. So it might be that positive messaging, oh, you know what, we can do for you. If you vote for us, we could give you a job. We could do that. We could do that. It could be that the voters are a bit doubtful, or it might be that it's harder for potential voters to conceptualize a possible future rather than it is for them to con- a possible more positive future where things that aren't currently there might be there, but it's a lot easier for them to picture a world where the things they have are taken away. And maybe that's where the opposition parties are missing a trick. Maybe instead of promising the moon and job creation, they should be spending more time reassuring ANC voters that if you vote for us, the social grants are secure. Well, this is the reason I made the point about uh, that the the grant system was actually under threat under the ANC government. Yeah. Um, you know, it wasn't a vague possibility. It was actually, there was going to be an interruption if the Constitutional Court didn't intervene. Um, but you see, I think I think you answer something about you know that people feel secure in things as it is, as opposed to as it could be, mm. because there's always the danger of that change might bring insecurity. Um, but you know, when when you look at the issue of gender violence, and I think that we tend to also be myopic in the way um, this issue is dealt with, um, in that. Uh, uh, people don't see it as a political issue. They see it as um, as uh, as um, a reason to to protest, uh, uh, and and that it's a it's a massive crisis in our society. But it's not used as a political weapon. Yes. In that he's saying, as women, um, the vast majority of us are susceptible to abuse, have been victims of abuse, um, and um, that our children are in danger of uh, of being abused. But we don't use that to empower us as a, as a, almost uh, as a lobbying mechanism in politics. So rather we check out of the political system. Yes. And have you seen protest action by women on women's issues but not as a political issue, but you've seen protests at the union buildings or to, to force the president into making statements or to convene um, uh, summits on gender equality and uh, on gender violence, but you don't see it translated in the election campaign. And maybe to- it feeds back into that point that... Uh, maybe it's seen as such a big societal issue that no one party can affect it positively or negatively one way or the other. 
it's something that we have to solve, but it's not something that we could believe this politician's promises if they say they'll solve it or not. I don't know. But I think what what should have been, because we don't see the political parties responding to this issue. They're non-responsive on the issue unless, uh, you know, there is um, militants and activism on it. So what should have been done uh, is, or, 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 the, or the approach could have been, that women say, which political party in the in, amongst the 42 parties um, has the strongest voice and the best plan in tackling gender violence and gender equality? And we haven't done that. And I think that that um, is prejudicial uh, to us as women because we're not using the power of numbers that we have. Speaking of which, Paul, I mean, we didn't actually get into the numbers in our intro too much in terms of like where exactly the, in terms of the registration, in terms of uh, uh, where the woman voter is in, in, in their turnout, and what, what's what is the historical context there? Because I mean, we know that the the evidence is that while women, yes, they they have higher registration, they they're less partisan. So in the sense that when I'm asking the questions in terms of like political parties missing the trick, it's like kind of leveraging off that that less partisan approach or less party loyalty that that um, that the numbers show within uh, within the women constituency how can they leverage off that the international evidence you're right scott suggests that w- it suggests that women vote more or they're more likely to vote based on the issues than on personalities which might be in direct um, contradistinction to what ranjani was talking about earlier maybe um a majority of white women voted for Trump despite his personality or it could reinforce it maybe they were voting because they are socially conservative and religious and they thought that a Republican candidate would be most likely to um, you know, defend, to, to be more pro-life and to, to be more aligned with those issues than they were and sometimes one issue trumps all the other issues. In South Africa Women, as we said, they registered high numbers. They turn out at higher numbers. In terms of party loyalty, the same research we looked at showed that uh, that there is a downside to disregarding women. That when when the, the the first round of this poll was done in 2017, there was a gap. There was a gender gap amongst ANC voters or likely ANC voters where many more more men were expected or said that they would vote for the ANC and women were likely to vote for the ANC in much smaller numbers. They re-ran this survey again, this poll again earlier, well, I think in October last year. Mm, Yeah, it was. And that gap had disappeared and the working theory there by the the authors and the and the researchers of the of the survey was that Ramaphosa had he had managed to undo all the harm of the Zuma years you know that there was um, the strong statement coming from uh, the Berkowitz corner there <laughs> I am just I'm echoing other research reports and other news articles on this research report again we don't have the kind of information that we'd like to have 
if there were more regular questions in the polls that we're seeing at the moment rather than just who you're likely to vote for or um, I think the Institute for Race Relations has gone one further and has broken down the uh, participants by race but we haven't broken it down by gender or by sex to look at these things more closely. Well just in closing I was going to bring that up so in the sense that both of you in this in this, in this this recording have often referred to a lot of um, things happening in America the way that things work in a state so it kind of raises the question I mean where we are in South Africa in terms of our in terms of our polling I know you've mentioned before exit polling doesn't exist in this country um, so we can't really really make really good determinations in this particular election and how I mean, how women are really going to influence things? We don't actually really know. I mean, we know they hire registered. They're, you know, that's a, that's a simple de- demographic tick to have in your in in terms of your in terms of your data around elections. But beyond that, you know, representation in parliament is one thing. Um, women leaders in party in parties is another thing. But I mean, in terms of the vote, I mean, we don't really have the information in terms of whether they do influence things or not. Or I think there are lots of gaps in our knowledge uh, about understanding our electorate and. Uh, understanding different types of voters. So there are lots of assumptions made about a lot of people. So with the youth vote, with the women vote, the rural vote, um, you know, there, there are all sorts of assumptions, minority vote, for example. And I think that there needs to be more investment in terms of understanding the psychology of people in this country. So another thing that I feel is a missing piece is that we don't know whether women trust other women in politics. Um, because our politics is very, very male dominated. Although the the uh, I think the contingent, uh, the NC contingent in Parliament, the caucus is 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 split quite uh, equally, you know, on a fifty fifty uh, uh, basis uh, of represent uh, representation, and um, you know, even in the NC NEC. Um, but that doesn't translate. You, you, you find that there's a presence of women, but not leadership by women. Um, and you saw with, uh, for example, in Kosasana Lamini Zuma's bid for the ANC presidency in 2017, um, that there was a massive trust deficit in her because people believed that she was, uh, you know, almost a front for the Zuma camp. So which would have meant that somebody like her, who's an established politician, Who's been, um, you know, in, in was in the first government of Nelson Mandela, uh, whose credentials shouldn't be really called into question. But somebody like her was still not trusted, and we have to look at those factors as to why uh, people didn't trust. So, uh, for example, you had Lindiwe Sisulu, who was on the. Ramaphosa slate. Uh, so there was this massive push from the ANC Women's League to to support Nkosazana Lamini Zuma, but not to support her uh, for the position of deputy president. Uh, uh, or, or, you know, so so, so the, 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 the ANC, I suppose, is a difficult uh, test case to use because it's five thousand uh, delegates who, uh, and it's by no means representative of the people of South Africa. So I think there needs to be more uh, sort of research done uh, in terms of um, the broad population and how people feel about women leadership and whether this will be a factor in future elections. 
Paul, any comments there? I mean, uh, are you feeling a little bit out of out of the loop since you don't have the data available to <laughs> to really answer the questions we're raising in this in this recording? That's never stopped me before, Scott. But in all seriousness, um, I'm sounding too much like a fanboy. I, c- I can echo a lot of what Ranjani has said, and also to if I want to make reference again to Nazrik as she's done, it seems to me that the whole business was done under a huge cloud of cynicism, and maybe it wasn't so much uh, about Nkosa Lamini Zuma having the first name Nkosazana, but the fact that the surname was Lamini Zuma, which was more of an issue. But the cynicism comes in when you look at the internal politics at Nazrek. As as Ranjini said, support um, Lamini Zuma, but don't support Sisulu. Or say that a vote for, uh, if you're the Women's League, say that a vote for uh, Lamini Zuma is a vote for women and a vote for emancipation. There is some earlier research to support this general era of cynicism, unfortunately. There was, I think it was done about 10, 12 years ago, where women in South Africa were polled and they, and they were hopeful and they were enthusiastic about the gender parity legislation that had come in. Because now we, I think we're in the top 10, maybe the top five countries in the world when it comes to representativity of women at the highest political office. But if you asked anybody if they voted for the ANC because they instituted the Department of Women, Children and People with Disabilities. Maybe I'm projecting. Ranjan, you can you can corroborate or you can tell me I'm wrong. But I, I think you'd get a few hollow laughs and, and a kind of like, yeah, okay, well, now we've got 150 million rand a year departmental budget for what's a box ticking exercise. Uh, and nothing has really changed in the lives of women. I don't know if we being cynical, maybe Ranjani, you could say, because you're the only women in the booth at the moment, to focus so much on whether there's this big connection between women's issues and the way women vote. The international evidence, not just the US, but what we looked at in it, um, India and Brazil as well, which are maybe closer to our own experience, is that... There's a lot of articles written around election time and a lot of discussion like we're having now about what will the women vote do and should um, politicians make overtures to, to women. And then the election comes and goes and the feeling seems to pass. You know, women could decide the election, but women don't vote on block. So treating women as one monolithic voting block is, is, a, is a form of sexism itself, right? Um, yeah, I think so. That um, I, you know, there are women in all categories of society, and all of them have different needs and um, different perspectives, um, and and look for different things in politics. Um, so you know, it's 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 wrong to assume that um, you know you can have a one size fits all kind of party that will represent women's uh, rights and views. And I think that's another anomaly um, in in the political field right now, is that you have, um, you know, many religious-based uh, parties, um, and they, they speak to women because by, by and large, more women at, uh, attend uh, or, you know, are, are members of churches and uh, religious organizations. Um, you have, um, you know, uh, parties for landless people, um, and you, you, the, 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 I think the ballot, uh, you know, the, 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 if you look, look down the list, 
all those those parties should have specific messaging that will target the people in the constituency that they're looking at, but nobody does. Um, and you know, there's kind of blanket messaging, um, and that is why I think so many people are opting to vote for the least objectionable party mm. uh, in this election uh, because they, they, they. I think we're all struggling to find a political party that represents who we are and what we aspire to be. So I think whether it's women or, vo- or, or, or youth or um, you know just the average person and average journalist um, is that that's that's the struggle with this election is that parties are not talking to us um, and we, we have to compromise to find something identifiable in a party rather than the, the party identifying with who we are. Yeah, I think that's a really good, uh, really good point to end on. Um, I mean, if anything we take out of this discussion is uh, it's a bit of a the, what the women vote is and what it means, and especially what numbers we have available to us from a data perspective. Um, it's still wide in the open. Hopefully, that'll prove in the future. Um, guys, thanks for uh, Ranjani and Paul for taking time out of your schedules to join us today. You've been listening to the Numbers Don't Lie, and uh, you can find us um, on your podcast app, app, or you can find us on today. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Listening to Final Take, a multimedia live production from the Tiso Blackstock Group, publishers of the Sunday Times, Business Day, and Financial Mail.